And as, as they're leaving, as we're preparing our hearts, I want to ask you a question. Are you okay being considered foolish? Are you okay not just having your spouse tell you what a fool you are, but are you okay with perhaps the world looking at the way you do things and saying, that's naive, that's childish, that's not looking at the world the way it is. Do people say that about you? In other words, is your way of life characteristic of the faith that you hold, the faith that Paul says is foolishness to the Greeks and a stumbling block to the Jews? Because what I want to present to you today and submit to you today is 2 Samuel challenges us because if we're going to present to us two kingdoms... And it's going to challenge us to look at the way the world works and ultimately say, which kingdom mindset do we have? And so just by way of introduction, because what we're going to do is we're going to read the passage. And, but as we read the passage in its entirety, and it's long, it's 32 verses, let me give you just a very brief overview of the way things are. Because if we remember... David is in Ziklag, right? And so it's the very far corner uh, down to the left. There kind of almost it really is in the area of the Philistines. And he's in Ziklag while the battle against the Philistines in which uh, Saul died was in uh, Mount Gilboa, right? And so that's way up there into the north. So what we found out last week is Saul has died. And so what we see now is it begins after Saul has, or excuse me, as David has mourned, Saul and David, he's then going to ask of the Lord, and the Lord's going to tell him, go from where you're at in Ziklag to Hebron. Now, Hebron is a major city in the tribe territory of Judah. Now, so remember, David is of the tribe of Judah. And Hebron itself is not only just an important city within that tribe, it's an important city to the history of Israel. Hebron is a major place in which we look at the history of Abraham. A lot of that history takes place in Hebron. Hebron is where um, Abraham encountered the three, uh, the three visitors uh, being God. Uh, Hebron is ultimately where uh, he, him, Abraham was buried and Sarah was buried. It's the one place that he essentially owned property in the promised land. And so David is going to go there to uh, Hebron. And in that time, what's gonna, what we find out is the nation, or I should say the tribe of Judah, anoint him king. And so he's going to stay king there in Hebron for seven years. Now, immediately after he finds out, as, I should say, as they anoint him king, what happens is they, he finds out that the people in the city of uh, Jabesh-Gilead, which is, on, is there kind of up towards the north and on the other side of the river, if you remember correctly, when they heard about the Philistines taking Saul's body and uh, hoisting it up and making it a prize, this city which had been one of the, the, the high points of Saul, King Saul's career. This was the city that was rescued by Saul from the Ammonites. And so these people, they went and they, and they, they took Saul's body 
back from the Philistines. They snuck in, they got it, and they gave it a proper burial. And so David, upon hearing this, even though it's in the far nations that actually rejected David's kingship, he sends them a letter commending them of their covenant faithfulness. He uses covenant language, their steadfast, their hesed love, and actually promises them his own steadfast and promised love. However, what we see, though, is the, the image changes. And in verse 8, what we're going to see is Abner, who was Saul, King Saul's chief general and family member, is going to make a power play. And so what he's going to do is he is going to take Saul's son, his only surviving son, and make him king, and he's going to take him up far to the north. So at the very far, I know it's difficult for you to see, up in that far north part on the other side, at the very end of where that orange line is the city where where uh, they're going to turn Saul's son into king. So that's way far up into the north. And what's going to happen after that is we're going to see a civil war take place. And you're going to see the two sides enter into a place of conflict, into this battle. And the side of Judah, David's side, is going to win the battle, but it's going to come at a steep cost. So let's then, using that... Let's go into the word of the Lord. Hear now the word of the Lord from 2 Samuel chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And after this, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And to the Lord said to him, Go up. David said, To which shall I go up? And he said, To Hebron. And so David went up there, and his two wives also Ahinoam of Jezreel, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. Excuse me, Carmel. And David brought up his men who were with him, and every one of his household. And they lived in the towns of Hebron. And the men of Judah came, and they anointed David king over the house of Judah. And when they told David, it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul. David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said, May you be blessed by the Lord, because you showed this loyalty to Saul, your Lord, and buried him. Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you, and I will do good to you, because you have done this thing. Now, therefore, let your hands be strong and valiant, for Saul, your Lord, is dead in the house of Judah, has anointed me king over them. But Abner, the son of Ner, commanded Saul's army, took Eshbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. And he made him king over Gilead, and the Asherites, and Jezreel, and Ephraim, and Benjamin, and all of Israel. Eshbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel. And he reigned two years. But the house of Judah followed David. And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. Abner, the son of Ner, and the servants of Ishbosheth, son of Saul, went out from Mahanaim to Gideon. And Joab, the son of Zeruah, the servants of David, went out and met them at the pool of Gibeon. And they sat down in one on the one side in the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. And Abner said to Joab, let the young men arise and compete before us. And Joab said, let them arise. And they arose and they passed over the number, 12 for Benjamin and Ishbosheth, 
and the son of Saul, and twelve servants of David. And each caught the opponent by his head and thrust his sword into the opponent's side, so that they fell down together. Therefore, that place was called Halkath Hazurim, which is at Gibeon. And the battle was very fierce that day, and Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. And three sons of Zeruiah were there, Joab, Abashi, and Ashael. Now, Ashael was as swift as foot as a wild gazelle. And Ashael pursued Abner, and he, and he went, and he turned neither to the right hand nor to the left from following Abner. Then Abner looked behind him and said, Is that you, Ashael? And he answered, It is I. Abner said to him, Turn aside to take your right hand or to your left, and seize one of the young men and take his spoil. But Ashel would not turn aside from following him. And Abner said again to Ashel, Turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I lift up my face to your brother Joab? But he refused to turn aside. Therefore Abner struck him in the stomach with the butt of a spear, so that the spear came out into his back. And he fell there and he died where he was. And all who came to the place where Eshel had fallen and died stood still. But Joab and Abashi pursued Abner. And as the sun was going down, they came into the hill of Ammah, which lies before Gia, on the way into the wilderness of Gibeon. And the people of Benjamin gathered themselves together behind Abner and became one group, and they took their stand on top of a hill. And Abner called to Joab, Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that the end will be bitter? How long will it be before you tell your people to turn for the pursuit of their brothers? And Joab said, As God lives, you, if you had not spoken, surely the men would have given up this pursuit of their brothers until the morning. So Joab blew the trumpet, and all the men stopped and pursued Israel no more, nor did they fight any more. <clears throat> and Abner and his men went all that night through Arabah. And they crossed the Jordan. And marching the whole morning, they came to Mahinam. And Job returned from the pursuit of Abner. And when he hath gathered all the people together, there was missing from David's servants 19 men besides Ashael. But the servants of David had struck down of Benjamin 360 of Abner's men. And they took up a shale and buried him in this tomb of his father, which was at Bethlehem. And Joab and his men marched all night, and the day broke upon them at Hebron. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy towards us. Open our eyes to your word, that it might go and change our, our, our mind, our thoughts, we move from our head into our heart to change our very affections, what we long for. Give us grace to not only to see, but to apply your word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, this certainly is an interesting passage within there. It's certainly a passage that certainly, it's, 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 especially if you're a history buff or you're excited about hearing about kind of how things transition and battles and stuff like that, there's a lot going on. 
And there's a lot of really kind of interesting stories. But let me submit to you what we see here first and foremost, what we see contrasted ultimately is two different kingdoms. What we see is two different versions of a kingdom. Now, we see two literal kingdoms in that we see a, a kingdom of David that is set up in Judah. And ultimately, we know that this is a kingdom of God. Why do we know that this is the kingdom of God? Ultimately, no, this is the kingdom of God because God had already anointed David as king. It was long before Saul had even left. And everyone really kind of knew that David was supposed to be king. In fact, even though it doesn't say it in this chapter, Abner himself, we're going to know from chapter 3 that we'll look at next week, himself knew that God had anointed David as king. And so we see that there, well, there's this, this quite literally a kingdom of God that is established. But what we also see is a rival kingdom, a kingdom of man that is set up by Abner. Now at first, it's going to look like this kingdom of man is a little bit bigger. It's certainly a larger number of the tribes of Israel. Now there's a certain progression that takes place. And that's even, you see that a little bit in the text. And that's why I believe it says that, that Esbosheth reigned for two years versus David reigning for seven because there was kind of a progression number of the northern tribes that seemed to, to fall in line with Esbosheth and Abner there in line as, uh, progressively. And so it seems bigger, but ultimately is a kingdom that is destined to fail. But not only do we see the ultimate destinies that are going to come about in these different kingdoms, what I find all the more striking in this narrative is the characteristics, the way the kingdoms operate is in stark contrast to one another. And what I want to submit to you is what we see in the first kingdom, in the kingdom of David, that you see really in the first six verses is a kingdom of God that is characterized by three different attributes. Now, this isn't to say this is all the attributes of the kingdom of God or of God's people within there. These are just three specific attributes that I see at work in David in this particular chapter. And then those the three attributes that I see is first and foremost, there's an intimate communication there is a prayer life that is there that characterizes this kingdom that is completely absent in the kingdom of man. The second thing that I would say, what we see is a submissive trust before God. There is a submissive trust before God that is at place there. One that ultimately says, God, you are king and I am not. This is your kingdom and what we want is your rule here on this world. And there's a submissive trust even when that trust seems to be contrary to the ways of this world. Even when that trust seems to be perhaps causing us to suffer or wait longer than we feel we need to wait. But the third thing that we see here. In this kingdom, this third characteristic is love working itself out into good works within there. And I'll explain a little bit more what I mean by that. But as we start off, let's take a look first in what with the first thing that we see right off the bat that characterizes this kingdom. And that first characteristic is an intimate communication with prayer. Notice how quickly, right off the bat, how do you characterize David and what he does? He doesn't immediately say, oh, wait a minute, Saul's dead. Now's my time. I got to pounce. 
Now's my, and that's what we would say. Look, strike while the iron's hot. You got to move before somebody gets yours, right? That's the way our political world, world works. That's the way we often think of in our businesses or frankly, even with our families. Aggression is the way. But notice what David's first, not only his instincts, but his heart, his love of God first compels him to do. The first thing he does is pray. Now, that's oftentimes for us, the, one of the last things we do. We don't wait. We don't pray until all of our world is crashing around us. But in the kingdom of God, because that kingdom of God is characterized by a loving, gracious intimacy in which we are brought into the presence of God by grace... Because of the work of Christ, what ultimately is characterized by us, whether there's big decisions or not, is a people who is abiding with God in prayer. Abiding in communication. There's that constant source of prayer with God. And ultimately in that prayer, what it does is it reveals and it, and, it, and it submits and it grounds us to place ourselves before the Father's will rather than first seeking what is what makes most sense to us. So in other words, what you see in that, what if God had said, no, don't go to Hebron, stay where you're at. And you know what? Sometimes he will do those sort of things. He will call us to wait. We see in 2 Corinthians, Paul, he addresses the quote-unquote super apostles who try to say, look at all we've done. They're operating from a world standpoint. Look how impressive we are with our rhetoric, with our speech. Look at all these spiritual bona fides that we have. Paul's not impressed with that. He says, no, my credentials are my weakness, my suffering within there. Ultimately, my, my hope is God's grace is made perfect in my weakness. Prayer anchors us to that gospel mentality within there. Not only because it enables us by faith to abide in Christ, and, but just recognizing the audacity that we are in communion with the living God by grace. That in itself humbles us. But as we are united with Christ, it changes us. Paul Miller, and this isn't an exact quote, more of a um, kind of a paraphrase, calls prayer the engine room of the church. It is the kingdom life, it is the heart of ministry within there. As he often loves to point out, Paul Miller, you never see in the New Testament when it talks about spiritual gifts, the spiritual gift of prayer. Why? Because it's for all of us. Prayer for the believer is like breathing, he often says within there. Prayer keeps us tethered to the gospel. It is power made perfect. And let me submit to you folks that in our own lives, as we seek to be submissive to the kingdom, and especially for us as a church, we will not be a kingdom-minded people or a kingdom-minded church without a robust prayer life. Now, the second thing that we see within there 
it's, it's so tied in and meshed with the first that really it's, it's difficult to separate it. And that's a submissive trust before God. And certainly there are many ways, this, the, 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 the kind of the same coin, just different kind of almost expressions of it. But what we see, as I've already really kind of covered, is there is within David this submission before God. God, should I go to Hebron? Should I go to Judah? Okay, if I should go to Judah, where do you want me to go within there? There is this at the heart of that communication that I call this is ultimately a heart of dependence. God, I need you. And ultimately it says that what is going to happen isn't going to happen because of my giftedness. It's not going to happen because of my skill as an orator. It's not going to happen as my skill in thinking or my skill in strategy. It's not going to come because I'm such a brilliant tactician or a fighter. It's not going to become because I'm super holy. Ultimately, my future, what will come about, will become about because of the sovereign, gracious work of God. I am completely and utterly dependent upon Him. Kingdom of God living is a living that first and foremost says, our everything comes from God. My security, my refuge, my future. All that I have, whether it, and you may have comparatively by the, the, the measure of this world, a lot of things. You may have a robust retirement account. You may have a robust mind that is brilliant. You may have robust network of friends. But in the scheme of the cosmos, all that stuff is nothing. Even what you have, you have by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what God has called us to be is a kingdom people that recognizes that all we have is ultimately God's and our very future doesn't depend on these things that we so often rely on. Our brilliance, our ability to manipulate, our, our ability to get things done, our energy, our health, the strength of our networks, the strength of our financial portfolio, the strength of our job, Ultimately, it becomes a dependence upon the Lord Jesus Christ. What we find that is so interesting is that submission to God begins to move itself into submission to other people. One of the great letters of, uh, of justification by faith, the book of Ephesians, right? Where we had that masterful uh, verse that so many of you know and cherish and love is, by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourself, it is a gift of God, as anyone should boast, right? But what do we see at the heart of that letter is the gospel works itself out, and as we see that rich theology of love, it transitions into the way we live to walk in a manner worthy of God in the chapter in chapter 4, and what we see within that is as we become captivated by the gospel, as we become a people that is completely and utterly dependent upon not ourselves, but on God, what we see is a life that begins to work itself out in love that is submitting to one another. A lot of times when we think through those, those submissive passages in Ephesians, we, what do we go to immediately? We go to chapter 5 and the relationship between the husband and wife. 
But if we step back and look at it, what we see is an entire, in every aspect of life, every one of us is to be submissive. A heart of humility and submissiveness that recognizes we need something outside of ourselves. And so, the, the, the third thing that we see quite clearly as one who is dependent upon God, who is ultimately has their heart and their face looking to God, we see in David a heart of love that not only is love for God, but in that love of God and that trust of God has made him secure. And that's the best, that's really the only place where you're gonna find the security to be loved. For you to truly love well, it means that you're a person who's actually been able to receive a stabilizing love, a love that can only come from God, a confidence in God's love for you that you've been able to receive. Otherwise, any kind of attempts to love that you do will ultimately be out of insecurity. But when we're secure in God's love, it frees us to do loves that manifest for the glory of God. Now, I have to put love that works out in good's works because so often in our culture, we think of love in mere sentimental terms. In other words, love just ends itself out in kind of good feelings. That's not really a biblical love. Biblical love works itself out in the way we treat and interact with one another. It goes beyond simply good feelings. And so David, secure in his love, is hearing of this good works, this good deed that these people of Jabesh Gilead did. Now, this is a people, if you saw, is pretty far to the north. So this is one of the first people that actually turned themselves over to the rule of Saul's son. Now, whether they did so, we really have no understanding of how all that worked. They may have done so at the point of a, of a sword with Abner saying, hey, follow us or else. That may have been it. They may have been so completely loyal to Saul and his line because Saul, once again, had essentially rallied the people of Israel to save their necks from, um, from, the, from the Ammonites. We don't know. Maybe it may have been a natural hostility to David out of their affections for Saul. But regardless what you see is David looking, and because he's freed, he doesn't see a potential enemy or a rival. He sees what good thing they did. What a good thing they did. And he prays for them and wants them to be blessed and promises his own covenant love towards them. Is a love that had worked itself out into good works that has been freed by the sufficiency of grace and God's love and mercy. But this becomes deeply contrasted that we see with the second kingdom. And it's a contrast that becomes extremely noticeable as it transitions in verse eight, but Abner, and so you don't, don't miss that contrast. That's a strong contrast that's there that you see in the text, a, a contrast that I think it really wants us to see this is a separate kingdom. And what do we look at when we see immediately with Abner in this contrast as this rival kingdom? Do we see one who is dependent on the Lord or is waiting on the Lord? No. What you see is one who we see power, steps, power, words within there. 
He took Esbosheth. He made him king. He didn't wait for the people of Israel to say, oh, well, let's, let's make him king. He didn't go to them and say, hey, are you going to do this? No. He took what was in his power and he made it happen. He was a man of action. The kingdom of man ultimately looks and says, this is what I want and what I need to feel secure. This is what I need to feel hope. It wants power and security. And as much as it may bathe itself in religious language sometimes, ultimately it doesn't want God. It may want the things of God. It may want God to bless what their kingdom is. They don't want to submit to God. They don't want to be dependent upon God. Abner, however, isn't the only one who wants this way. We see this contrast there, clearly, that takes place. But let me submit to you as the scene transitions and we see this battle that takes place in Gibeon. And Gibeon is really kind of a halfway point. Now, we don't know what had been taken here. Was this that um, Abner had taken his men and they were beginning to march down into Judah's territory and and so Joab and his people uh, kind of met him there or vice versa. Maybe uh, they were going there to to stop a counter uh, uh, movement north. We know there was a civil war that had broken out. Best we can tell, this is the first battle of it. We don't know. Timelines can be a little funny that way. But what you see here is you see Abner on one side But on the other side, fighting for David's kingdom, you see three of his nephews. These, as we know from other places in the Bible, these three brothers, Joab and the other three, the other two, um, they're his nephews, they're his sister's sons. And we've already seen Ashante uh, previously, and we've seen that he's kind of a hothead. Uh, he, David had taken him when he had passed over Saul and had that opportunity to kill Saul. And he's the one who says, no, look, kill him. If you don't want to do it, just let me do it. And so we see these three brothers. They're kind of hotheads. And let me submit to you that what we see is both sides in this battle are absolutely representatives of the kingdom of man. Both of them are looking to gain what they want through force and power. Now, I'm not saying every time there's a battle or there's a fight that that, that is you know, against God. I think there is a place for just war theory and all of that stuff. But when we look at the characteristics of these three brothers, particularly this one who refuses to turn to his side, what you see within there is a people that is hungry to make a name for themselves. People who are hungry to solve Things through violence and force. We've already seen that with the, Shant, uh, uh, with the, the second brother. And we're certainly going to see it in the future with Joab. And so what we see is that that third brother comes in and he's following after Abner. Now the spears in that day, not only did they have a spear tip, but the butt of the steer, even though it wasn't a full blade, it was sharpened with a metal. It had a metal piece at the end so that you could stick it into the ground. 
And so one commentary, we don't know if it was just shoved into the, the guy's stomach or, you know, because he was, one commentator said he was following after him so hard, he just shoved his, the, the spear into the ground and the guy just ran right into it. I, I don't know how he got that, but maybe that's what happened. But we see this death that is there and then, then the anger at this death from Joab takes him into this fierce battle to the point where Abner has to call out and say, don't you see, we've got the high ground here. All this is going to end is to bloodshed after bloodshed. See, this is the point I want to make, and it's important for us to see and drive home here. Just because you're fighting for the kingdom by name doesn't mean you're on the side of the kingdom. You see, these three brothers... We're fighting for God's kingdom in, in a way. They are certainly fighting for David. They are fighting for the, which is the kingdom of God. But that doesn't necessarily mean they're fighting through kingdom means and that they themselves had a kingdom mindedness or even working for the kingdom. Now God in his sovereignty and grace is able to use it But this is important for us to remember. Let me give you a couple examples. First of all, you know, several years ago, this is many, many years ago, I had a neighbor and he and I were talking and he's helped me out with something. He was a really nice guy. And so we were talking and we were actually getting close to moving and he was telling me and I was asking him, so hey, you know, tell me about your, your faith background. And he mentioned, he's like, well, you know, I grew up in this faith, but I don't really go to church now. But he said, you know, here's my faith. Here's Here's how I serve God. I believe in serving God by helping the United States triumph over, um, over uh, Muslim countries. Now, there's a lot that we could kind of unpack with that, but what was he saying? He basically, he viewed, there's, which is one error, the, the kingdom of God with the promotion of the United States, which I would take issue with right there. But the second thing, he viewed it as basically, as long as these guys win... That's good enough for me. Now, we can kind of shake our heads to that, but it's important for us to remember, especially this time of year, as the political fever is beginning to ratchet up. It's easy for us to say we are longing for things that maybe the kingdom of God wants. For example, the kingdom of God may be pro-life. The kingdom of God may have a uh, biblical ethic of Sex being between one man and one woman in the bondage of marriage. A kingdom mindedness may be that we are, uh, uh, you know, um, we, are, we are for um, uh, Christian values. Put, insert whatever value that may be. Now, are all these true? Yes. But there are many of people that quote-unquote in the name of Christianity fighting for the kingdom does it in remarkably, in ways that are remarkably unchristian. And what they have gathered and what they have pursued and says, as long as we get what we want, then ultimately we're kingdom warriors within that. And I want to suggest to you that that is not true. Another way we can see is even within, this may hit even a little bit more close to home, and certainly some, something that many of us can be guilty of, us, myself included, 
We can even adopt and want different theologies that maybe we agree with. And maybe these are true and good theologies, but as we advocate these theologies, maybe to other people in our church, or especially those who may want to try to advocate them online, we can do so in ways that makes us, well, let's use the nice word, jerks. Pompous jerks. Now, does that mean that what we're promoting is wrong? No, we may promote good theology. But the way we do and go about it isn't about the way the kingdom of God moves forward in dependence and love and grace that ultimately sees God in control, but in a way that makes sense towards the kingdom of man. And so we try to bully We try to demean. We mock. Or we use crude sarcasm. What this ultimately calls us to do is set our, set our eyes higher than what we can achieve through the kingdom of man. It calls us to live in an enchanted world where we actually believe the sovereign, living God is at work in every movement of every molecule of every atom and he is sovereignly working in this world and in our lives. And we can trust him and we can be submit him, submissive to him. You see, oftentimes, and I've been criticized of this, people saying I'm too perhaps gentle or kind that I'm allowing the non-Christians to win by trying to say I'm not going to move to debase arrogance, arguments, or hostility. But let me submit to you that that isn't being setting my eyes too low or being too humble, but is actually a higher vision a greater vision that actually sees the almighty God at work. Even when it seems like the territories of the kingdom of man are getting bigger, even when it seems maybe like the people who scare us in academia or secularism or people of other faith and other nations may seem like they're getting more powerful. It recognizes that though, as we talked about in Sunday school, the nations rage, why? God's ultimately in control. He's ultimately the one who is at work. He will win and all the earth will be his. The second thing that this calls us to do and to remind ourselves is there's value in waiting. This is what's hard because sometimes in doing so, we have to wait a long time. We may get, you know, little pieces like David was able to take the throne in Hebron, but he knows that he's called to ultimately be king over all of Israel. And no doubt this had to break his heart when you see his compassion, when he saw fights between the two people of the two tribes, the different tribes of Israel. 
He had to have been looking at that saying, why is this? There's Philistines on this side. There's Ammonites over here. There's all these people surrounding us that that want to kill us and we're killing ourselves. That had to break his heart. But God was at work in the waiting, shaping him. And God is at work in us in the waiting as well. Shaping and moving and changing us according to his work. Teaching us to ultimately people who are dependent on him even when that doesn't make sense. Teaching us to love people that are hard to love. Teaching us to love people who may be even against us or wanting us to be stopped or put aside or mocked. And in all those places, it seems like waiting, but ultimately the kingdom of God is expanding at work. And we can ultimately trust him. So which kingdom? Do you have a vision for a kingdom that is bigger than you, that is bigger than this world? Submit to that kingdom this morning in your life and in your work and in your family, in your finances, and especially in your politics as we move forward, trusting that God is in control no matter what happens. Won't you submit to him today? Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness towards us. I pray, Lord, that you would lead us and direct us in all things. Lord, um, you taught us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And we're often, as C.S. Lewis has said, we, we raise our, our, our fist to you and say, no, I want my kingdom come. I want my will be done. We thank you, Lord, that you show us grace, that though we are rebellious people in your grace and in your mercy, You redeem us. Father, change our hearts this morning. Move in us. That we would long for your kingdom. To see you glorified in all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please stand and sing.
Thank you all for being here. Uh, I know it's really cold, and I appreciate it. I know we got a lot of people sick. So be on the lookout for people who may um, maybe having issues this week. Uh, by all means, let us know if you're having any issues, pipes burst or anything like that, any, anything you may need uh, help with. Make sure and let us know what we can be doing. Um, uh, if you're sick, let us know. At the very least, we can be praying for it. If you need any help, just, again, we are the body of Christ. Let us know how we can be serving and loving one another well within that. Um, also, I want something to be on your horizon. Next week, we're going to launch this a little bit more fully. Um, but we're going to begin a, what's called a Lent in the Living Room series in February and March. And so what that's doing, that's not going to affect the sermon. But we are looking to start a couple of weekly small groups that will be meeting just during that season of Lent. And what they're going to do is they're going to go through the book, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercies. And so we'll have some places and some signups for you to be able to sign up. Um, if you're interested in that, you're not committing to a long-term group. You're just committing to those particular months. Now, we do hope that some of those groups would continue to meet and move forward into that. But uh, we would encourage you to be praying about that and thinking about that. And we'll have more information for you moving into the, into the future. But just wanted you to be aware of that. 
Also, uh, the next men's breakfast will be this Saturday morning, January 20th at 8.30 here at the church. So men, love for you to have uh, come, be here. We'll have great food. Uh, we'll have a great time in devotional uh, as we look to God's word and just great time of fellowship. So be here January 20th at 8.30. Also, Saturday, February 10th. Now, that's, in a, that's, come, that's a little bit of ways. However, there's going to be sign-ups starting next Saturday. And the reason they're signing up, because what this event is going to be is a casserole cook-off and karaoke. <laughs> casserole, cook-off, and karaoke. All right? So, never, I bet some of you never thought those things would go together. Casserole and karaoke. But they do. And you're going to see it happen. Saturday, February 10th. There's going to be sign-ups next Sunday in the foyer, uh, and you can bring, elect to bring a casserole dish for judging, a bread or dessert to share. Child care is provided, but you must sign up. So if you want to come to that, you want to have people, other people watch your kids while you sing karaoke, you got to sign up because we got to have planning. So please do that. that that will be signed up next, uh, next week. You'll be able to begin that. Now, we have been announcing Kara Hodson would be here uh, to both share and then have a lunch after the fact. Unfortunately, Kara was sick this week, so she wasn't able to be here. She will, however, be here next week. So basically, we're just taking everything and moving it back a week. So next week, Kara will be here, share her ministry, and then we'll have a meal afterwards because she, you know, we, we don't give her a, too much time, but there'll be plenty of time afterwards for you to be able to come, eat, and get to know more about what God is doing in her life. If you want to come pray with me for anything, I would encourage you. I'm down here at the front. Um, you want to know more who Jesus is uh, or anything you may be going through in this life. Uh, you want to come pray with me. Come pray with me. And may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, you're dismissed. <laughs>